0: you have your copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to open up to Matthew chapter 6. We will begin in verse 5 as we continue to walk through the Sermon on the Mount. And the title of the message today is, How Do We Pray? It's a question, how do we pray? Is there a right way to pray? Is there a wrong way to pray? Is the way that we pray right or is it wrong or how do we know? I think what we learned from Scripture, from Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount is the right way to pray. But before we go any further or read the text, I want to invite you to pray with me as we prepare. Father, as we come to your word, we ask that you would open our eyes to the truth of your word, that you would teach us and give us understanding in your word. And our Father, we pray that you would lead us and direct us Make our hearts sensitive and teach us and lead us by your Holy Spirit. I pray, Father, that even as I preach this morning, the words of my mouth and the meditations of my own heart would be pleasing in your sight. For, Lord, you are my rock and my redeemer. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. In Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 5... Jesus teaches us about prayer. And so I want you to follow along as I read, beginning in verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. So according to Jesus, there's a right way and there's a wrong way to pray. And so Jesus teaches us how to pray. And so this morning, I want us to look at simply two points on the outline and a few sub points under each one. And the first is Jesus tells us and teaches on the motive of prayer. We say, well, prayer is a great thing. It's a good thing. Yes, it is. But can we pray wrongly? Can our motives be wrong in praying? And the answer to that question is, yes, they certainly can. And so Jesus, in verse 5, simply assumes that his disciples are going to pray, right? In verse 5 he says, And when you pray, right, you must not, not if, but when. And when you pray, like we saw last week, not if we would give to the needy, but when. As disciples of Christ, this is just the activity of the life of a disciple. So when you pray. So he simply assumes his disciples will pray. And in verse 5, Jesus actually describes the wrong way to pray. He says the hypocrites like to perform their prayers in public places. So he says, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogue and at the street corners. That they may be seen by Others. Here's the motive behind their prayer. So that others would look at them and see their prayer. Hear their prayer and think, how righteous, how holy, wow, look at him. And so Jesus confronts this issue. In fact, devout Jews would stop wherever they were in whatever they were doing at the time of the afternoon sacrifice when they heard the trumpet sound. They would face the temple and then there they would pray. Now, if they timed it just right, they could be on the street corner of a public street and so that when that time happened, they would then turn, face the temple and begin to pray and everyone who was around them could hear and could think well of them as they were standing on the street corner praying. Since this occurred daily, they could time it perfectly to be on the street corner for their public performance. And so Jesus is confronting this context what would happen in the midst of daily life. But I think, conversely, we should also note that Jesus isn't necessarily all-out condemning public prayer. The fact that his model prayer begins with the first-person plural pronoun, right? Verse 9, our Father tells us that this is most likely a public prayer. It's a corporate prayer that believers would say together. In fact, that he's teaching his disciples to pray together. So the hour in verse 9 is actually instructive that Jesus isn't condemning public prayer. Instead, he's advocating for secret prayer. He's making a case for secret prayer, in fact, because secret prayer will inform public prayer. And so there are three implications in verses 5 through 8 about the motive of prayer. And the first one is that prayer is about communing with God and aligning our hearts with His. Prayer is about communing with God and aligning our hearts with His. You see, prayer isn't about others' perception of us or proving even how holy we are. Jesus is teaching that we can't be hypocritical in our prayers because the one person we cannot fake out is God. He knows. He knows all things. We can't be hypocritical in coming to God. And so hypocritical prayers are addressed to man. But pious, righteous prayer is addressed to God. And this is what Jesus is driving home. One man quit to another after a prayer had ended, he said, that was the most eloquent prayer addressed to an audience of people that I've ever heard. Right? Sometimes we can try to shape and mold and fashion a prayer so that it impresses all of the hearers. But the question is, does it make its way into the presence of God? Is it being heard by God? And so this is a temptation for those who would Script out prayers, especially in the context of a large ecumenical meeting or maybe even in the case of an inauguration, you know, and so I think as believers, we're going to be careful not to judge someone else's prayer. That's up to God. And so I'm not advocating for that. But what I am advocating for is as believers, when we come before God and we pray to God that we must be authentic in our prayer. And that the secret prayer life of the disciple of Christ then informs the public prayer life of the disciple. And so the best corrective to hypocritical public prayer is authentic private prayer. Public prayer should flow from authentic private prayer. The second implication I think we need to see in verse 6 is the reward of prayer is answered prayer. The reward of prayer is answered prayer. He says, But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Let me say the, the greatest reward of prayer is communion with God. For what are we doing when we pray to God? Well, we are coming to Him to speak, to commune, to enter His presence, and to enjoy His presence. And so the greatest reward of prayer is actually communion with God. There are several notable truths that we need to understand regarding, I, I think, regarding the reward of prayer. And the first is this when we petition God through prayer, when we petition God through prayer, we must be ready to be used by God to answer that prayer. When we petition God through believer, when you go to God in prayer about a particular issue or circumstance that you're faced with in life, you must be ready to at least be part of the answer to the prayer that you're bringing before God. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean, if we pray something like God, give me deliverance from this sin. But well, I think that means that we're going to have to work diligently in renewing our minds and memorizing scripture and in, in guarding our lives against this particular sin. Or maybe if we pray, Father guard me to fight against temptation to sin. Then we need to be careful and mindful of how we approach our day and even how we're renewing our mind. Or if we pray, God grow my faith, then, then maybe that means we need to be more in the word and exercising prayer more. If we pray, give me patience. Well, we we know what might happen if we pray. Give me patience, right? So a lot of times we ought not to pray that one. Lord, increase my understanding. Well, how might that happen? Only by studying God's word. Father, save my children. How might that happen? Only by being intentional to live out the gospel in the home, to speak the gospel in the home. Father, save my neighbor, right? Well. You see where we're going with this. And so we must realize that when we bring a petition before before God, we must be ready to at least be part of the answer to that petition that we're bringing before God. Right. Because God works through his people. He works through his church. But secondly, realize that God doesn't always answer prayer the way that we want him to. You know, he he just doesn't. Because God is much more wise than we are. And he sees things from a much greater scale than we can see them. And so sometimes the prayer that we bring before God for a particular healing or the prayer that we bring before God for a particular issue to be resolved, right? Uh, Sometimes these things don't work out the way that we want them to and consequently there's pain and there's suffering. But on the flip side of that, we need to realize that God is sovereign Lord. And while he... Wants what's best for his children. Sometimes what's best for her can best for us can hurt. Sometimes there's difficulty in walking through a particular issue in our life. Sometimes there's difficulty in uh, in, in weeding out things that need to be weeded out. There's a there's a battle. There's a struggle. There's a there's a real fight inwardly to battle against a temptation or a sin that that rages deep within And that's a hard process. Sometimes that hurts. I think what we need to do is realize that God doesn't always answer prayer the way that we want him to. The second implication is that, or rather the third implication is gaining a hearing with God. Gaining a hearing with God is not determined by the length of our prayers, but by the nearest nearness, by the nearness of our hearts and minds to his. This word father in verse. Six and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And verse eight, do not be like them for your father knows what they need before what you need before you ask him. This word father implies sonship. It implies relationship. It implies implies lordship. And it it it, it means that. We would have this relationship with the Heavenly Father. It's this language that's used of family. And in verse 7, this word, and when you pray, don't heap up empty words as the Gentiles do. This word for Gentiles in verse 7 should be understood in the sense of pagan, meaning all non-Christians. Even Jews, people outside of the family of God. Because this understanding of father, it means relationship. It means being brought into the covenant family of God. And this is what Jesus is teaching his disciples to look forward to. And so if we've not yet become children of God, then we're not able to enter the father's presence with our petitions. You know, I think there are many moral deists... In churches across America. And what I mean by that is they have a good sense of morality, of right and wrong, and they believe that there is a God, that He exists, but they've never really connected this dot of, or connected this understanding of Jesus Christ being God in flesh, paying for our sin, and then paying the debt that we owed so that we might have a relationship with the Father through Christ the Son. And so what what Jesus is saying here is that in the approach to God, we're coming to him as the loving father. So for them, for, for the New Testament believer, for those who have a relationship with the father, God is a loving father. But for those who... Those who don't, who've never surrendered their lives to Jesus Christ, for them, God is not a loving father, but God is a righteous judge. And without Christ, they will hear the terrible words that Jesus says in the same Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 21 through 23. On the day of judgment, Jesus will say, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who says, the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven on that day. Listen, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and do many wonderful works in your name? And then I will declare to them. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I mean, these were people who thought they were doing righteous works and good works. Things that would gain them entrance into the kingdom of heaven. But what Jesus is saying is no, if you've missed the Son, then you've missed entrance into the kingdom of heaven. And so, what Jesus is doing is he's teaching us the right way to pray, the right way to know the Father. And the right way to know the Father is through Christ the Son. let me just say, if that describes you this morning, then hear my plea and hear God's call to repent, to turn from your sin and to place your faith in Jesus Christ by confessing him as Lord and surrender your life to him. In verse 8, he says, For your father knows what you need before you ask him. This means that there's great comfort and confidence for the child of God in approaching God. So the issue is at the length of prayer. Jesus spent all night praying before he selected his disciples. All right, read John 17. John 17 is a long prayer. The New Testament affirms also persistence in prayer. So Jesus isn't saying that when we come to the Father in prayer that we can't say the same prayer over again. That's not what he's saying. In fact, Jesus modeled persistence in prayer for us as well when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, just before his crucifixion, when three times he prayed to the Father, Father, let this cup pass from me, not my will, yet your will be done. Chiefly, though he wanted this cup to pass, His crucifixion on the cross. Chiefly, his desire was for the will of the father to be done and worked out through him. And so the issue that Jesus is confronting is saying meaningless words prayed over and over again. I've, I've been in services where people have just vainly recited the same phrase over and over again perhaps thinking that by repeating the name of Jesus over and over and over again, that their prayer would be answered more quickly or that they were being more fervent. Or I've seen in the charismatic church where where they vainly recited an unintelligible phrase repeatedly over and over. Or I think that practicing Catholics and particularly those who pray a prayer a particular number of times as instructed by a priest after confession as a prayer of penance. I think they're in danger of simply going through the motions in wrong, with a wrong motive, right? Because let's remember what prayer is. And I'm not picking on Catholics because I think we as Baptists in any other denomination do the same thing. God calls us to engage our minds when we enter in prayer. To be authentic before Him. And that's what Jesus is challenging us to here. To authentic, righteous prayer. To mindfully engage with God. You know, it's ironic that we could take the same prayer... That Jesus gave us as an illustration of how not to pray. And we can pray it in the very way that he tells us not to pray. Right? I think it's good to memorize the Lord's Prayer. We've taught our kids the Lord's Prayer. But we've got to be careful that when we begin saying the Lord's Prayer. That we don't go to some mindless place. And just begin saying things in resuscitation. The point is that we need to be intelligible with what we're saying. We need to engage our minds and our hearts as we're praying to the Father. And so our focus in prayer shouldn't be on the number of times that we say things or just getting to the end. Our focus then should be on authentically coming before God and speaking with the God of the universe. So when we pray, When we pray, we're agreeing with God for His will in our lives and for those whom we intercede. When we pray, we're agreeing with God for His will to be done in our lives and for His will to be done in the lives of those for whom we intercede. And so, hear me out. God answers prayer, He hears. He answers the prayer of his people, even as we have seen this morning in our testimonies. He may not answer our prayers in the way that we want him to, but he answers prayer. Joni Erickson Tata said, sometimes God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. I thought that was a profound statement to help us understand how God is at work in the midst of our lives. Sometimes God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. So here's the thing. How we pray, church, how we pray reflects our view of the character of God. And what Jesus cautions us against is hypocritical prayer. What Jesus exhorts us to is authentic prayer. Do we approach God authentically? Do we approach God authentically? What about when we sit down before the meal to pray? Is it just an exercise we do out of habit so we can get to the real thing that we're doing, eating? (laughs) Or what about when we kneel down with the kids to pray at night before going to bed? Are we being authentic, church believer? Are you being authentic in your prayer life? So the motive of prayer is authentic, mindful communing with God, right? It's being authentic in his presence, communing with the father. The model of prayer is seen in verses 9 through 15. And if we don't make it all the way through, we'll, we'll come back and pick it up next week. One scholar gives this kind of outline for the Lord's Prayer. It kind of is three, three points. First, when we come to God, we're orienting ourselves to God. Secondly, when we come to God, we're, we're praising God. And then thirdly, we're petitioning God. We're orienting ourselves to God, we're praising God, and then we're petitioning God. When we orient ourselves to God, we're saying this is is who we're praying to, right? And then praising God, we're declaring who He is and what He has done. We try to model this even in our services. Every Sunday when we come together, we begin with a prayer of praise and adoration. As we come together, we want to adore God and we want to praise Him for who He is. And then for petitioning God, we're confessing our dependence upon him. And we try to model this, too, as a a prayer of confession, petition and intercession before the Lord. So this is what our this is intentional, right? This is what we are to do as we come into God's presence, as we come to pray before him. So first, let's look at verse nine with orienting ourselves to God. Jesus begins with the words, pray then, like this, our father in heaven. Why is the word father significant? Why is it significant that Jesus teaches his disciples to pray to Yahweh and to address him as father? If you think about this, this is a revolutionary way for the church to come to God, for disciples, for believers to come and to approach God, The term father, the name father, it speaks to the eminence of God. It speaks to his closeness, right? That's what eminence means. His closeness, his approachability. So the father, it speaks to the context of of family. And in saying our father, we're saying, God, you care about us. And we can approach you because you take a deep interest in creation. And you take a deep interest in our lives. So for the disciple, for the first century believer... This is new. They've never thought about approaching God like this, in a, as a father. They've only thought about God as being one who is distant and far off. But isn't this the point of what Jesus is teaching us? That because of Christ, he is the way that we come to the Father. Because of Christ, we can now be near to the Father. He has made a way, then, for us to be near to God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in The Cost of Discipleship says, The right way to approach God is to stretch out our hands and ask of one who we know has the heart of a father. And So Jesus says, we pray then in this way, our father, a God who is approachable, one that we can come to who loves us and cares deeply for us. And where is he at? He is in heaven, our father in heaven. God is independent. He's outside of his creation. He's all-knowing, right? Even before we ask God, he is all-knowing. Psalm 139.2 says, you know when I sit down. The psalmist says, you know when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. Psalm 139.4 says, even before, listen, a word is on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it all together. So then you might ask what I would ask. Well, if God already knows what we need, why pray? Well, the answer to that is because prayer is where we commune with the Father. It's where we respond to God. Prayer is where we honor God's holiness. It's where we come and we confess our dependence on God. We submit to God's sovereign rule in prayer. Listen, just as an earthly parent knows what his child or children need, they they still take great delight in their children's asking, right? So it is with the Father. He takes great delight in his children coming and beseeching him, honoring his holiness, communing with him. Not only is God omniscient, all-knowing. God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. So He's in heaven. He's all-powerful. He's able to do whatever He desires. But not only is He omnipotent, He's also transcendent, meaning that He's outside of time and space, outside of the bounds of the universe. And listen, yet He is imminent in that He makes Himself known to mankind. God is intimately involved in the affairs of his creation. And so, hear me, this is the God that we pray to, believer. When we say our Father in heaven, we're addressing the God of all created order, the God of the cosmos, who isn't far off and unknowable. He's near, He's approachable, He's knowable. He's knowable because of Jesus Christ. So get this. Jesus has given us a boldness to enter into the presence of holy, omniscient, omnipotent, transcendent, and yet imminent, eternal God. And we can converse with our heavenly father like a child coming to her father. And we can even come to our Father like a child often comes to his parent or her parent with this audacious request. And we can converse with the Father. We can bring our request before Him. And the reason is because of what Jesus has done. Hebrews 4, 14-16 says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who is tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly before the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Here's what Jesus has done. He has made a way for us to enter into the Father's presence so that We don't just think about him as a God that is holy and otherworldly that we cannot approach. But Jesus has actually made the father approachable. Jesus has stepped down and he's made a way for us to enter into the father's presence. Andrew Murray in the ministry of intercession writes, Beware in your prayer above everything of limiting God, not only by unbelief, but by fancying that you know what he can do. What an all-powerful God we serve. Prayer. Prayer works. We accomplish great things through God's power in prayer. And what I mean by that is God is accomplishing great things as as he's beseeching us to come and, and to come before him to pray. One other source said, Faith does not operate in the realm of the possible. There's no glory for that For there's no glory for God in that which is humanly possible. Faith begins where man's power ends. So I wonder if the way we pray to this God would astonish anyone. Are your prayers astonishing? Are they audacious? Are we asking God for things that are not humanly possible? Are we faithfully coming before God, seeking him to do a work that he can get the credit for, but not that we can take credit for? Or are we simply relying on our own strength in our own way, in our own mind, our own provision? To get us through each day. We ought to be praying for God to do the humanly impossible. Because that's the kind of prayer Jesus challenges us to. Because that's the kind of God that we serve. A God who has defeated sin and death and Satan. And so Jesus says we begin prayer by orienting ourselves to who God is. Our Father in heaven. And secondly, we continue. We continue by praising God. There in verse 9. Hallowed be thy name. You don't have to raise your hand, but I wonder how many of us have said this prayer, but really don't understand what hallowed be thy name means. It's old English. We've kind of lost what that means in translation, right? And so if we're not careful, we become like. We become one who's reciting vain or empty words, and so. This, this prayer, hallowed be thy name. It, it means, God, may your name be treated as holy. God, may your name be set apart from everything else through my life. May your name be treated as sacred. May it not be profaned. This means to give God glory by expressing our desire for God to receive glory actually from our lives. So if you look at verse 10, what's interesting is the last line of verse 10 on earth as it is in heaven. It modifies these petitions. Hallowed be your name on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, Jesus is saying, God, let your name, your character be known for who you truly are on earth as it is in heaven. Well, how is God's name Revered are known in heaven perfectly, right? There is perfect submission. There is perfect authority. There is perfect holiness for God the Father in heaven. The angels bow before his throne, right? I mean, we sing about this. And so what Jesus is saying is, let it be so on earth. And when we're praying this prayer, we're saying, let it be so on earth through my life, through my testimony, through what I am doing, through my actions. And so this is a prayer for God to work in and through our actions and our words and our corporate life together as a church. This is a prayer for God to use me to image Christ to the world. Hallowed be your name through me. Let no one look at my life and think that I've profaned God by claiming one thing and living a different thing. I think St. Patrick's breastplate prayer captures honoring God by rightly imaging Christ to the world when he prayed, Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ within me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ at my right, Christ at my left. Christ in the fort, Christ in the chariot seat, Christ on the deck, Christ in the heart of everyone who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ in the eye of everyone who sees me, Christ in the ear of everyone who hears me. So, how is God hallowed in heaven? The answer is, perfectly. How is God hallowed in my life? The answer is imperfectly. But by the grace of God, he is working and he is hearing my prayer in this regard. And he is hearing your prayer in this regard. And he is strengthening, and he is equipping, and he is, he is encouraging, and he is empowering you, believer, me, us, the church, to live in such a way that we bring honor and glory to his name. And so Jesus is teaching us to praise God as we seek to honor and glorify him through holy, unashamed, righteous living. Thirdly, and we'll pick up here next week, orienting ourselves to God, praising God and petitioning God are what God is calling us to and what Christ is calling us to as the church. When we pray, we orient ourselves to God, God the Father. We praise God who is in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. And we petition God, right? Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. God desires to work through His people to accomplish His will on earth as it is in heaven. To bring that to fruition through the life of the church. And so the challenge for us as we leave here this morning is to meditate upon the truth of God's word. Even to take this prayer and to practice it anew this week. To go before the Father praying as the prayer says, thinking through the implications of this text. And as we come back next week, should the Lord give us next week, we'll see how these petitions play out in our daily lives. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, as we come before you this morning, we exalt you. We lift high your name. And God, we praise you that you are above all, that you are Lord of all. God, we praise you that you care deeply for us and that you entreat us to come to you. And Father, we praise you that because of Jesus Christ, you have made a way for us to enter into your presence. Thank you, Jesus, that you have satisfied the wrath of the Father against our sin. And you have made a way for us to know and to enter into the presence of the Father. And now, Lord, as we continue in this time of worship, we want to worship you in spirit and in truth. Acknowledging that you are the God of heaven and that we are in your presence. And that as we worship you, we come transparently and we come humbly. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you stand?